Hello and welcome to another episode of Learning Rewired, where leaders are challenged to rethink what, how and why they and their organizations learn. Learning Rewired is proudly presented by Headspring, custom executive development specialists as part of Headspring's commitment to fostering cultures of continuous learning. I am your host, Bevan Rees. The industrial era was defined by the need to know everything. The new industrial revolution is defined by the need to learn, unlearn, and relearn without inflexibility and attachment. What are the human capacities that prepare our people for this type of constructive transformation? Which intelligences will become increasingly relevant as we move into the age of AI, and how do we construct the learning culture to support their development? To help us answer these questions, we are joined today by Simon Ashton, business psychologist, trainer, certified coach, over 15 years of experience in L&D. At Phoenix Leaders, Simon works with clients across a broad range of sectors, applying strategies from the fields of neuroscience, psychology, anthropology, and the social sciences. Simon, welcome. Hello. Great to have you in the room. Thank you for having me. Perhaps it's a good place to start there, Simon. We, we were actually speaking off air about how people enter the marketplace, the job markets, um, with the skills that they step out from business schools, for example. And they often these badges of honor that mm-hmm. they wear, um, outstanding institutions that they've qualified or graduated from. The question that hangs over increasingly over those qualifications is, are they the right type of qualification? Not so much in terms of the academic credentials, but rather the skills that the graduates have learned in their actual time. And is this something that you see regularly in your work, a deficit or even a surplus of these kind of skills? Uh, I think, so as you were saying, we were talking off air before we started, I think that universities, business schools, whether you're looking at a master's or an MBA, I think we still focus very heavily on technical skills, Mm -hmm. technical competency, which is obviously still massively important in order to be excellent in your role. However, I think that those institutions, be it, UK or abroad still miss the softer skills Mm -hmm. and let's Mm -hmm. call it softer skills although softer skills isn't always the word that organizations like to use Mm -hmm. because I think we're still heavily focused on IQ Mm -hmm. rather than maybe some of the other intelligences that you mentioned Mm -hmm. in your build-up but I think that organizations we're still very much blinded by institutions that people maybe have been to Mm -hmm. and our biases kick in around those institutions as well. But the skills, I think, interpersonal, intrapersonal, relationship building, relating to other human beings is one of the key Mm -hmm. focuses, I believe. Mm -hmm. So am am I understanding correctly, we're talking a lot there in in the region of emotional intelligence? Yeah, I think so. If we look at the World Economic Forum and the the research and the study that they completed around skills from 2015 to 2020... Emotional intelligence didn't even feature in the 2015 skill sets. Mm-hmm. In 2020, it jumped in at number six. Mm-hmm. I think if we're talking about emotional intelligence moving forward in the years, is that going to creep further up the ranking? Personally, I believe it will be. And I think that by 2025, maybe that's number two or number three. Mm-hmm. So interesting findings and interesting that the World Economic Forum have recognized that already. So this isn't a new conversation, right? I mean, the conversation about emotional intelligence has been going on for some time. The conversation about IQ being a redundant measurement of human potential has been going on for some time. 
learning and development functions with organizations have been working on, you know, inverted commas, softer skills, yeah. whether they call them those or not, for some time. So in your opinion, what to what do we attribute this lag if there still hasn't been that much of a shift? Now, so a very brief history of emotional intelligence. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could go back to the 1960s where emotional intelligence was there. It just hadn't been nationally named. Mm-hmm. And although Daniel Goleman, who is revered and, and is the maybe the godfather of emotional intelligence, actually, you can go back to Howard Gardner back in 1983, mm-hmm. whose multiple intelligence is his theory around we've got spatial, we have logical, we have musical intelligences. That I think that started the debate. And then in 1990, Salavoy and Mayer, they actually coined the term emotional intelligence. So it's not new in any way, shape or form. However, I think that we have now realized, and Goldman did a huge amount for, particularly his his piece in the Harvard Business Review, mm-hmm. allowed organizations to see, actually, we might be missing something here, and that IQ is potentially overrated, and there are these other skills that we can have. But I think that realistically, do organizations truly know what EI means? And I think that HR and leadership functions, yes, emotional intelligence is a regular buzzword, a a line that is used regularly. But actually, if you drop that then down through the layers in organizations, do the people right at the bottom, which is who the the workers, the people who actually deliver maybe the the products of the customer, whatever it may be, do they actually know what emotional intelligence actually is? Mm -hmm. So it's a fantastic... It's a fantastic construct and it's a fantastic opportunity to to help us be more productive. But actually, what is it, EI? Mm-hmm. And I think that HR and leaders understand what EI is, but actually what does that mean to the person much further down the, the chain? So if I'm hearing you correctly, there's this disconnect between, I suppose, the learning product of EI and the genuine understanding and manifestation of it in a practical way yeah. in the working environment. Yeah. And you mentioned the the kind of the the you know all the way down to the lower levels of the organization if we're looking at it from a hierarchical point of view. Do you see a similar pattern in the leadership levels and the executive levels? I think that we are still and this may be controversial but I still think we're in a leadership function away from those who know it. We're still looking at what can we produce? What how intelligent is this human being? What are the cognitive capabilities of this person? That's going to generate performance. Mm. And I think that EI is one of those growth mindset, another term that is used freely. Mm. But actually, what does it mean? Mm. How does it impact me? How does it make me better? Why do I need to know these things? Mm. And I think it's about communicating what actually EI is and how it is going to impact the leadership function. Because leaders make organizations, leaders impact on all the people that they work with, the people in their teams. Leaders need to understand EI. Again, if you surveyed maybe 100 leaders in an organization, would they know what EI actually is? Mm-hmm. It would be an interesting study. That would be an interesting study. My guess is that, and you know, I'd love to hear your views, my guess is that many would have heard the term. Many would be able to give you some form of definition. If I'm hearing you correctly, though, that still leaves this deficit between understanding, to whatever degree that is, and actual impact yeah. in the workplace. So that impact, I'm, I'm guessing, is related to behavior and action and some form of evidence in performance. Yeah. Yeah? Yeah. I mean, a, a really simple exercise, if you don't mind me, uh, just yeah, an activity I do within a, a coaching setting and John Whitmore from Sir John Whitmore, mm-hmm. coaching expert, 
something that I picked up was that if you're going to talk about EI, and let's break it down, make it really simple. What does EI actually mean? And for me, it's you give the example of, think of somebody, when you were a child, an older person that you looked up to, that you love spending time with. How do they make you feel? What did you do around them? And what did they do to produce the emotions, the feelings? And I think the people that you love spending time with tended to give you space, allow you to project your own thoughts, allowed you to feel trusted, you had self-belief. And I think if we're going to talk about AI, let's keep it really simple. What are those people? So the people in organizations, leaders, leaders, if you're working with them, will make you feel that. They will give you the space. They will challenge you. Mm-hmm. They will build your confidence, and but they will not shout at you or argue with you. Mm-hmm. And I think it's... So even if we're going to go and talk to the lower level of the organization... Forget leadership. That is the, how do we make it nice and simple? Make it simple in that it's understandable. Yes, we've got self-awareness and self-management and social awareness and social management, the, the academic constructs of that make up emotional intelligence. But actually, most that's a lot of things to think about mm-hmm. when you're interacting day in, day out and doing your day job. Mm-hmm. So let's keep it, for me, keep it simple. I think the other thing that we need to think about is bring the neuroscience into this, mm-hmm. bring the brain into this, because people actually understand things that are explained to them in a more scientific way than maybe a psychological and at times can be seen as fluffy mm-hmm. constructs. Mm-hmm. So neuroscience can, so I'd love to hear thoughts on this, neuroscience offers a, a really useful bridge between those kind of more technical outlooks, the kind of the more harder skills that we've, that we've been speaking about, and those softer perspectives, and adds some weight and credibility to the idea of softer skills and makes it more digestible within most organizations. Agreed. Because something that struck me as you're speaking, I mean, I understand there may be perhaps a lower emphasis on softer skills, especially as we move into this increasingly technical environment. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, there's so much in public dialogue and business development and about digital transformation. We're entering into this age of AI I mean, there's a whole lot there that goes on red alert about do I have the skills to step into this unknown world? Yeah. And that from leadership level all the way down through the organization. Organizations can definitely be understood or it's definitely easy to understand why there is this increasing bias perhaps towards technical proficiency to equip the workforce for these times. But in fact, it's not really a one or the other, is it? No. I mean, we need these human skills to really support constructive technical development. Hundred percent. I think. I mean, talking about future-proofing leaders, and if we're if we're looking at the next ten, fifteen years, and AI will become a force in the next ten or fifteen years. But ultimately, what we know about AI already is that it can do the the intelligence. But so about the the analyzing, the planning, the crunching of data. Mm-hmm. Humans aren't actually needed for that nowadays. I mean, we can consultants who are in who are in that world of preparing and, and analyzing information for their clients. Actually, AI will probably take that away from them in terms of that role. The key role is about relating to other human beings, and I think that's why this emphasis on AI becoming more and more prominent is that actually we need to we need to be better at being human beings. Mm. And that may sound silly, but it's we need to be better at being at relating to others. And because that's going to be our point of difference for the future. Mm. Is, uh, is there not in there sort of the nub of this problem, which is that it's far easier to learn something technical than it is to face the parts of yourself that make it more difficult to be a better human being. So despite EQ, for example, uh, or emotional intelligence, for example, 
being what we're calling softer skills. There actually, there's nothing that soft about it. It's actually far harder in many ways to learn those kind of skills. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. if you look at stress and bringing stress into it in terms of if you measured what makes people most stressful in their working day, there are a number of surveys out there that show that actually managing other human beings, mm. relating to other human beings, is the most stressful mm. part of someone's role. Mm. And particularly if you're a leader who have maybe 100 reports and each of those have their own brain and they're all unique individuals and they have their own challenges and goals and focuses, that's a difficult place to be. You've got to be a, a very rounded, EI, technical confident, competent human being to be able to deliver that message to all those other human beings. Mm. So I think the this human aspect is only going to get more and more prominent as we move through the years. Absolutely. I mean, especially in those environments where there are these increasing pressures, especially to perform, mm. um, competitiveness is becoming increasingly difficult to establish. So, you know, the pressures are, are greater and from there extrapolated out into stress, you know, the potential is for it to increase and all signs show that it is increasing mm-hmm. worldwide. So those skills that help one manage those in a constructive way, especially with other people, are going to become increasingly important. So this doesn't sound like rocket science. I mean, why do you think it is then that there is this inertia in really investing in the development of these skills in the workplace? Or is it just that we're not doing it the best way? Um, I think we... There are lots of programs out there, be that internally, in in terms of organizations bring these softer skills to the fore, but actually, to your point, they're harder. They're harder to create the habits. They're harder to recognize what we're doing in the moment. It's much easier to assess a technical competence, to turn around and go, yes, I've achieved that objective, that goal, because I have inputted that knowledge, that information that I have. But in terms of assessing your your ability to relate to other human beings, how do you assess? Because you're, you're you. So your self-awareness needs to be profound if you're going to understand, actually, I've made a really high impact on that human being whilst I'm communicating and I'm directing and, I'm, and we're having a coaching conversation, whatever it may be. So I think that it's it, the difficulty is, A, changing habits, first of all, and that as we know within the learning arena, how do you change somebody from doing one set of behaviours, attitudes, to changing them to another way? And it's painting the, I think it's the why. Mm-hmm. We talk about Simon Sinek and he's, mm-hmm. he was very good at creating this start with why. People need to understand why is it better for me to be more human? What's it going to do for me in terms of my own personal goals and Mm -hmm. achievements for me Mm -hmm. to change this habit? And I think whenever we're starting a program, we always really put a lot of emphasis on program launch, trying to create that message and understanding of why the the individual is coming on this program, why we're delivering these skills, why is it going to make your life better? Why are you going to be more productive, more successful? I think organizations maybe miss the opportunity to present the why mm-hmm. in the first place. I think mm-hmm. we go straight into, these are skills you require, let's go for it. Absolutely. Um, quite a bit of the work we're doing recently has been about the why, but the alignment between the personal why and the organizational why. Is that something that you see as, as an important link? Or is it enough to get somebody just really motivated on their own? Yeah, I, get, yeah, I think to try and link the two is the ideal. But I think that human beings can be very much self-focused, self, self-involved, self shall we say. Um, and I think we want to be successful in our own right. But actually, the really savvy organizations who link in the values, 
linking the bigger picture, the, the vision, the purpose of the organization, and can align that to to a team's focus mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. I think to get to link it to an individual, that's quite difficult. But I think if you can get it into a team and a culture, then you're winning. Mm-hmm. Culture, the big word. <laughs> I mean, it, that, that is the big win, isn't eat it? Eat strategy for breakfast. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, someone positioned it, I thought, really smartly the other day. Um, a guest on, on the show, she said, um, culture is values made manifest as behavior. Mm-hmm. And and I think that really neatly sums it up. Because to go back to what we were saying earlier, to see that real physical evidence of somebody really getting, for example, emotional intelligence, this is not something that you mark on a scorecard. You know it when you see it. Mm. And it almost starts a virtuous cycle. Um, it triggers those emotionally intelligent parts of yourself when you have role models or, you know, especially members of leadership operating yeah. in an emotionally yeah. intelligent way. But it doesn't even really take that, does it? I, mean, I think that your point about leadership and role modeling is vital, mm-hmm. whether it's emotional intelligence, whether it's psychological safety, whatever it may be, mm-hmm. whatever creative problem solving, critical thinking, whatever it is, role modeling is, and again, going back to the brain, we mimic. We mimic other human beings because it's what we're programmed to do to keep us safe, to keep us in the group, to allow us to survive. Mm-hmm. And I think that one of the things I always try and press when I deliver a, a program is you play such an important role, not just in the delivery of the organization's objectives, but in, in impacting on the other human beings and that you don't realize that you are on show every minute of every day that you're mm-hmm. in eyeline of your either direct reports, your customers, your stakeholders, whoever it may be. And so we are mirror neurons, and this is a the part of the brain where we literally like to copy. Mm-hmm. Our brain is programmed to make sure that we, we stay in the safety of the group. Mm-hmm. So to your point, and I maybe I've gone on too long about mm-hmm. that, but actually mirror neurons and mimicking and watching what's what great and it goes back to that point I made about AI. We role model off people who really have the skills that we admire mm-hmm. and want to be like them. So, to your point, role modeling is huge in anything that we do. You, you make a point there. I mean, you, you focus on leadership, but there's also this this other just human to human connection. And we not necessarily role modeling, but we get this this kind of behavioral feedback with other people who are in that. I suppose just in that intelligent state, mm-hmm. um, be it emotional intelligence or one of the other intelligence you described. And I'd actually like to circle back and get your feedback on that in a moment. But how do we get to that place in an organization? So I'm obviously not asking for, you know, the three-step roadmap to a perfect, you know, emotionally intelligent organizational mm-hmm. culture. But from your experience in L&D, the L&D function often has very specific challenges to playing an active enough role or yeah. having enough of a remit to get there. Could you maybe speak to some of those challenges from your experience, one or two of those, and, and then perhaps how do we address those? Uh, so I think that it starts with, is the organization a learning organization? Mm-hmm. I think that L&D as a function, sitting very closely to HR, does it have the voice that's strong enough to turn around and say, this is going to generate this in terms of bottom line figures. Is this going to create more widgets produced, more pounds, whatever it may be? And I think the struggle with L&D has always been when any sort of maybe training invention or development, can you literally pinpoint this was the reason in terms of this intervention, how it has generated and improved our organization? And I think if you're looking at things like psychological safety and growth mindset, there are now ways of tangibly seeing we're more interested, we're producing 
better ideas mm-hmm. or making fewer mistakes. But I think that the L&D in itself, we need to be influencing top table mm-hmm. in terms of actually how do we align it to our, our overall objectives and our, the core objectives, the strategy objectives of the business rather than just looking at L&D as a separate function because mm-hmm. at times I think it is seen as, as a standalone on its own and we can't always justify the results that come out of the interventions that we're producing. So, mm-hmm. but at that, And the business needs to circle back and look at actually L&D, oh, this person is deficient in this skill set, let's put them on a training program. Great, but actually... Is that the training that they actually need or is there a problem somewhere else in the business that maybe it might just be that they don't have the resources to be able to do the job rather than it being a deficiency in a skill set, mm-hmm. potentially. Mm-hmm. So I think that L&D maybe needs to become more performance consultants looking at rather than just going, yes, we need to improve or develop or put this training program in place. Actually, it needs to be more around well, what's the end goal? What are we trying to achieve in terms of an output? Mm-hmm. And then we can work back to see, actually, is it the training or is it maybe something else in the systems within the business, the organization? So looking at it as a performance consultancy role rather than looking at it as just a, an L&D and we need to improve our people from a, a learning perspective. Yeah. I mean, we hear this often that the L&D function is in many organizations there to sort of tick boxes, carry out orders, uh, kind of, you know, with smaller budgets than most, and these challenges are well known. But, I mean, as you're speaking, and I'm just reflecting on the way that we were speaking about emotional intelligence, for example, is there a sort of a, in the mindset of decision makers, a lumping together in character? You know, we were talking about how there's less investment in something like emotional intelligence because it's perceived as softer, less urgent, less necessary. Is L&D sort of seen the same way? Is it seen as a bit fluffy, as in it doesn't really, yeah, it's, it's great to have that, but it doesn't really lead to clear outcomes and clear performance-related results. Mm-hmm. Is, is, is there an issue here just in perception? Um, is it purely about a strategic approach to it that's wrong? Yeah, and I, I think more, even more so than HR. So mm-hmm. I think that if we're looking at where does L&D sit, do, do you have someone from an L&D perspective sat in the boardroom very, very rarely? Mm. Um, and I think that it's always about organizations are always around pounds and pence production of whatever it may be being successful on that side but actually learning organizations if we can create the culture going back to this culture word about mm-hmm. learning organizations wow the differentiation there in, in the and look at Google as an example the thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars are spent researching human behavior mm-hmm. in their organization mm-hmm. And I think that, yes, they have a, an L&D function, a people function, but ultimately it's interwoven into the fabric of the organization. Mm-hmm. And I think that organizations that see L&D as just this separate, softer, oh, someone's not doing very well in this area, send them on a training course, that's L&D will forever stay in that. But if L&D is seen as we are consistently looking at how do we improve in every conversation we have, every system that we that we work through, every opportunity is an opportunity to get better. That's a learning organization. And L&D then become almost a, a natural part yeah. of a business. You mentioned self-awareness earlier as one of the foundational skills of emotional intelligence. In that sense, L&D really does have the potential to become sort of the emotional intelligence partner of the organization, right? That, that, that critical, continuously self-reflecting faculty that asks the question continuously, what do I need to learn as the organization? 
in order to make the best of the situation right now and taking it into the future. That that continuous reiterative learning process is itself a very emotionally and developmentally intelligent way of, of engaging, isn't it? Yeah, and, and, but I still think we go back to this role modeling. Until you get the chief executive or the senior team mm. to really buy into it, I still think it's it will always be seen as a nice to have. Mm-hmm. You're absolutely right in, in what you're saying, but I think it needs the power of those key voices, mm. the people who really have the say in the organization turn around and go, this is the way we need to go. This is the direction we're, we're heading in because we know it works because we've done the research and that L&D will then become a really fully-fledged part of the organization. So there's the research aspect, of course, because this is a risky decision for many decision makers to commit budget, resources to taking what is a long developmental path. You don't just create a learning culture, am I right? I mean, no, no, no. That, that, that's an ongoing commitment. Absolutely. With lots of failures and lots of steps and learnings. And I mean, you... You, you mentioned Google. I mean, Google's famous for this, but one of the things that Google's famous for in that process is allowing space to experiment. Google obviously has enormous budgets to <laughs> experiment and fail. Absolutely. But, but that's been a marker of its, of its learning process. So do you have any advice or insight on how to do that in more conventional organizations where you know we're not talking about a total overhaul of organizational culture? Is, is there a way to input this kind of process or this kind of approach in smaller incremental ways? Or does it have to be a, a cultural evolution overall? Uh, the culture would be, be amazing, but actually you could start with your own, if you're a leader and have a number of people or have a team, you could start with your own pocket. You could start with working towards a learner mindset, a growth mindset very early on. I think that again is a challenge for if a leader is very much more command and control, tell and do, which can be the norm in lots of organizations because, again, the pressures that we mentioned before, Mm -hmm. if I don't achieve my results, then my status in this organization drops, my ability to move forward in this organization. So it's always about results, results, results. And I think that to change, as you say, a culture, that would be the ideal. But again, it takes a huge amount of build-up and a huge amount of, of, of little by little. But if you can turn your own small pocket into a a psychologically safe and learner mindset team, then that's the bit that you can impact. And that's the bit you can, you can't change the culture of an organization because it's very hard to swim upstream and, and change the direction of a business, but you can change your own little world, mm-hmm. in my opinion, and you can change your own, the team that you work with. And, and I think the other thing is you don't eat an elephant in one go. Mm-hmm. Let's mm-hmm. do it in little chunks, mm-hmm. little bits, do we try it in meetings and when we get together as a group, first of all, how do we set a learner mindset in our in our decision-making meetings? Can we allow people to ask questions, have a voice, allow that learning to start in an open forum, first of all? Mm-hmm. And then if you're a leader who is a coach, who is open to asking those killer questions to get people to think more, then again, one-to-one is a great place to do it. But I think we're still, a learner mindset needs people to allow them to do their own thinking. And I think that organizations and leaders still are probably managing or doing the job of the person below them. Mm. And what I mean by that is that we're so pressured to do a, a great job and get these results that we actually try and solve the problem of the person that comes up to us and goes, I have this issue, this is where I'm at. But actually, most of the time we go, well, this is what you need to do. Dum, dum, ding, dum, dum. There you go. Go away and implement it. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. 
well, actually, that's not a learner mindset in any way, shape, or form. What you're doing is just telling people what to do, mm. allowing people to have that that free that voice, that ability to answer their own problems, and then guide them. Mm-hmm. That I found that a lot in my coaching in the coaching practice, in that we're constantly trying to pressure time, resources, budget. I need to answer the question now. I need to get the sort of solution now. Well, how do you people get better mm-hmm. if you're just doing your, their job for them? That's a big thing. That once that penny drops. Actually, yeah, I need to, but but I've got I haven't got the time. We have got the time, and if you ask really smart questions and you get the people to think for themselves, wow, the results are there mm. long term, and you then get to do what you're paid to do as well. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the process you're describing there is a powerful process. That ability to what you're describing there is that ability to tune into the moment, using the data that's there to make an assessment, which is sure I'm actually. Um, probably overreacting a bit here. I'm getting to this urgent state of reactive hurriedness. You know, and, you know, I don't even have time to actually catch yourself in that, slow down and make a better decision, which allows somebody else to be coached into making a better decision. What we're describing here is a highly emotionally intelligent process, right? <laughs> so, we're circling back, yeah. <laughs> and, and absolutely. So, and, but, but to just kind of reaffirm what you've said before, this is, I mean, there are people that are born probably more adept at this than others. You know, everyone's born with stronger intelligences to use the Gardner model, but but this is definitely something that can be trained. And you've mentioned coaching a few times. Um, I mean, I know from your personal point of view, but you've also mentioned it in the, in the leadership perspective. Is that, that ability to, to be a coaching type leader, is that becoming increasingly necessary? Or is this just another very useful type of leadership? Or is this becoming increasingly relevant and necessary type of leadership as we go forward? Yeah, I think... Um and it's not leadership and management. I still think that there. Are, yes, we are, have the ideal of, of a leader mm. and leadership, and there is a difference between leaders and managers. But even I still work with managers who can mm. be coaches, mm. and you still can have the same skills to be able to. Whether your title is leader, manager, mm. whatever. Mm. But I think that leaders who are coaches, who are ultimately high in emotional intelligence, who actively listen who pay attention to the, that other human being that's sat there. And it's this fight and flight response that we have consistently around, I've got my own pressures, I've got my own targets, I've got my own tasks, I've got to get this done. Actually having a coaching conversation means that you're sat there without judgment and you just sit and listen to the human being that's in front of you and hear the person, not the problem. So we're not trying to solve the actual problem that they're, we're trying to understand what this other person has to offer and what can we do. And that, again, the challenge I get is that takes a lot of time. Mm. Well, it does because, again, it's a skill. A skill. Asking amazing questions that are well thought out and well designed is a skill. Mm. But it's a skill that we had when we were three and four because I'm sure we both have children and, mm-hmm. and then and my kids are, are still at that age now where they're going, why? 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 And that curiosity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the, the curiosity is is amazing. And why do we lose that? Where has that gone? Why are we gone into this mindset of answer, 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 jump to solution straight away? I think if we can step back and have those conversations where you're allowing people to ask those amazing questions and leave that silence as a leader. I mean, silence is a horrible thing for lots of people. They want to fill it within half a second mm-hmm. but if you can do that and let the person think and let the brain do its thing and bring those insights then that sort of leadership style as a, a coaching leader is hugely powerful hugely I mean I've, we, I think that some of the greatest leaders without knowing it 
are coaching leaders anyway. Mm. Um, but the, the power of the question, and it's some if we're talking about skills for the future and being that human being, let's get back to asking just great questions. Because mm. without the great questions, all we're just doing is jump into assumptions. Mm. Mm. That's a great statement. Thank you. Um, I'm just as you're speaking there, and you, you you're speaking about that that manager who manages to basically create that space and hold that space, and you know, whether it's full of silence or questions, or that's a really tough place to be because that manager also has his or her own pressures coming from usually from above to deliver his or own results, and there's a kind of a real strength to stand up against those pressures as well mm. and claim that space mm. really. So, you know, I mean, we've been, as you say, been talking a lot about leadership and, you know, leaders are obviously judged very strongly on results. But there seems to be this growing need the further you go up and through the, the kind of the hierarchy of organizations to have this confidence or the strength to claim that space and that autonomy in order for the rest of the organization to, to work constructively and work healthily. And we talked about this role modeling. The, the higher up you go, a lot of people, the higher up they go, feel that they've got a lot more to lose as they get higher. Mm -hmm. So the stresses and the, and the pressures may be in, increased, but actually you've worked exceptionally hard to move into the position that you've got. And to get there gives you the voice, in my opinion. It gives you the opportunity to start maybe collaborating with your peers who are on the same level to start talking about, actually, can we do something differently here? Mm -hmm. But again, I get challenged, Simon, that's wonderful. It's very idealistic. But actually, collaboration, again, is one of those key skills that would, again, focus very much on silos. And we, we like to keep our department very separate from someone else as well. But actually, in order to, to win, we need to share knowledge. We need to share information. We need to share best practice. And if that's a coaching conversation, if that's an opportunity to work as a group in a different way. But again, that's your firm fighting against the culture that may have been there for a number of years, mm -hmm. decades and that this is just the way we do around here. And I mean, and to the point we made earlier, that's, that's collaboration can also be one of those scary skills to learn. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like getting in touch with your emotions or other people's emotions can be terrifying yeah. uh, to many people. Um, and so can collaboration. It's, yeah. uh, you know, we're not programmed really to open up our territory to. No, but we are programmed to work together in teams. Mm. We're, we're mm. Forever, as human beings have, have existed on this planet, we are. If you don't have a group, and we talk about the in-groups and out-groups, if you're not in the in-group and you're ex outside of, of maybe the, the wider number, you are exposed. Mm -hmm. And in our ancestors of, of thousands and thousands of years ago, you would have been picked off mm -hmm. and you wouldn't survive. Mm -hmm. So actually, we've always lived in groups and mm -hmm. survived as groups. And that therefore means it's inherent in us. And so where therefore have we... Have we have we lost that focus? Mm. Where have we lost that ability to be able to say, well, actually, we need to, we need other people. There is the yin and the yang against the group identity and the self-identity. So I need to be on my own because actually I need my own space and I need to be seen as an individual. But I also, if I'm not part of this group, then I am isolated. Yeah, that brings in that, that really important element of inclusivity um, in organizations, which really comes, I guess, to echo what you're saying where you draw your line of group identity. Mm -hmm. Is it, you know, within my particular team? Is it with, you know, within this group of desks? Or is it as an organization as a whole? Yeah. And leadership, to reflect on what you're saying, has a critical, or the critical role, be that at senior leadership or management, in 
getting individuals to broaden that group identity as far as possible to ideally include the whole organization. Yeah. 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 I mean, then one of the questions that I ask is, and you can take it from a small team to a bit, what am I proud of? What am I proud of in this either organization, this team? What makes me come to work? What makes me come to work in this? In the, is it the people that I work with? Is it the the product that we're producing? Is it how we are viewed by the, the, the world in terms of we are an amazing brand? But it's getting that connection into what is it? What am I what am I here for? Mm. What am I engaged in? Mm. And I think, again, we're throwing some huge topics out here, but engagement as a topic right now, not many people are engaged. Yeah. And I think there's a, the ADP did a, a study and a bit of research, and I think it's 16% of the population that they questioned, only 16% were engaged. 84% just turned up. Mm. That's a bit of a scary fact. It's staggering. Yeah. Yeah. And, then, and, and therefore, so what do we do about engagement? There's, I mean, again, a big, big topic, a big topic. Absolutely. And I mean, to kind of circle around to where we started, we could probably teach all the technical skills in the world. Um, and that's not going to solve the engagement problem. Um, not at all. So, Simon, I'm going to put you on the spot uh, with one last question. Yep. If we were to look at one thing that you think individuals would gain the most from learning to keep them, I suppose, future proofed in an ongoing way, what should we be learning in organizations? Yeah, yeah, put in the spots. <laughs> um, so, go back to the, the World Economic Forum, 2015-2020. Top of the list, both years, uh, both 15 and 2020, is complex problem solving. Mm. And I think that's probably one of the, the biggest things that will probably maintain its, its momentum and its focus. How do we get to the answers? And it will also mean that the EI and the questioning skills and active listening and people, that all links into it. But as a human being, how do we solve the problems that are getting more and more complicated all the time because mm-hmm. we're getting AI thrown into the mix? There is machine learning. The world is a is a very challenging place mm-hmm. right now. But to solve the problems to keep competitive advantage, I think that's the key. But I think that what my one, to leave it, one last thing I would say, yes, we know how to solve problems, but all, do we have a process of doing that as an organization or as an individual? And I ask the question to lots of leaders in lots of different countries and organizations, and the question is, what process do you use to solve problems? And they go, I'll just solve them. Okay, so how then do you pass that information down to the, the people that you work with? How do they then solve? Well, we get them to solve the problem. But actually what we need is a structured way of assessing and understanding what that problem is. Um, we talked about in a previous conversation, organizations and individuals are primed to go straight to solution. Mm. We need to, because of the pressures, because of the, the demands, we go straight to solution. We very rarely stop to frame that problem and solve the problem that needs to be solved rather than solving a problem that we think is the problem we need to solve and then have to double back and answer that problem and solve the, the issue again. So we use a tool called um, the Bassador, which is a creative problem-solving profile. And in that, what it shows is four quadrants. You have your generators, people who think of ideas and who are very open to ambiguity and like ambiguity. Conceptualizers, who are the people who frame that problem and create the actual state of what are we going to go and solve. We've got the optimizers who then take the problem and turn it into start solution finding, and then you've got your implementers. But I think what we find implementers are the ones who go and do it. 
people who are there at the front line doing, doing, doing. And we need those people, of course we do. But I think the concern that we always find when we run these uh, these assessments with organisations is there was too many implementers and too many optimizers, mm-hmm. because we are primed through education mainly to go straight to solution. Mm. You've got to get the result right, because if you don't get it right, you've failed ultimately, and failure isn't great, mm. whether that's psychologically or from a results perspective. Mm-hmm. But I think that what we really could do better is just take that moment to work as an individual or as a group and frame what is it that we're actually trying to solve here? What is the problem that is is going to cause us the headache longer term? Not just now, because we need to seem to be doing, and then it goes back to questions. We yeah. ask you that. We have to, it's framestorming, framing lots of questions to frame the problem mm. rather than brainstorming questions to frame the problem. And I think that's the one thing that I would, because saving time by doing it right first time, that's the winning move mm. rather than going and doing something and then circling back. Great, because you're a learning culture and a learning organization, you're going to learn from that. But I think let's start with the, what is the problem that we're trying to solve? That would be my one. Mm. piece of advice I um, I love that and it r- reminds me of an old military saying that a friend of mine shared with me recently slow is smooth and smooth is fast and it really captures so much of that for me which is uh, if you have essentially the self-awareness you know all these faculties you were describing earlier the self-awareness I suppose the presence the courage to take time initially to slow down and really hone in on what you need to achieve, mm. the outcomes in the end are almost always not just better, significantly better and sustainably better. Uh, and, and it goes back to the psychological safety yeah. piece in that if we can, if we have a, a, an organization where you're allowed to say something a little bit silly and a little bit out of the norm mm. or so that you don't feel you're going to be punished mm. by the group. Mm. And I think that we're so primed to say go to solution and go to doing that actually that's because we don't have psychologically safe environments or organizations. I think that if you can start off by putting that problem there and and allowing every brain and hopefully it's a diverse team and what I mean by diverse is and again that's a maybe a, a conversation for another time mm-hmm. but what is diverse mm-hmm. um but at the not homogenous. We haven't got everybody thinking the same way mm. that those diverse brains can input into the process right from the start and be allowed to not then be ostracized or they have that tag of, oh, they've said it again mm. or, oh no, here we go. We're going. Mm-hmm. That is the starting point to, to great problem solving, mm. having the psychological safety to have a voice in what you think might be a, a unique scenario that we haven't thought about before. Yeah. Simon, thank you. Thank you for no, thank you for, for showing up today in the way that you have. It was a, a great pleasure to have you in the studio. Thank you, and uh, thanks so much for your input. Really enjoyed it. Me too. Thank you very much. Cheers. Thank you for listening. For more on our guests and the resources described in this podcast, please refer to the information section of your podcast player. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe to receive updates and latest episodes of Learning Rewired, brought to you by Headspring.